This is Dr. Tribule with the Glio Goddess podcast, and today I've invited a beautiful professional to speak about some resplendent ways parents can better cultivate growth in their children who may have a disability. I do want to say that this podcast actually is pertinent to all parents, not just ones that have children on the autism spectrum or children who are living with autism. So being a parent is hard and there is no manual. Many of us parent from our own beliefs and upbringing. And today I want to challenge that. My goal with today's conversation is to bring to your awareness that not all maladaptive behavior is taught. It could imply a cognitive disability. Leah will better help us understand that. Having a disability doesn't have to limit your children's ability or your child's ability. Parents have a huge impact on the way their child sees themselves. The most critical time is the first five years of a child's life. So guys, get it right then. That is so important. Setting realistic expectations, cultivating a supportive environment, and focusing on the ability of your child can make huge strides in your child's adult experience. Guys, okay? The way you talk to your child matters. What you don't say is just as important as what you do say. We have a lot more psychological research, which is a more objective approach. It's not the everything, right? But it is a more objective approach to parenting. And I just wanna encourage you to be open-minded about being curious about what's out there. What's, what kind of things are we learning about group dynamics, childhood development, trauma, all these things. The person I brought on the show today is a, is a womb mate. <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. She's my sister, and I'm excited to have her share her unique experience. Leah Bechtold, Bechtold has her master's in education with an emphasis in applied behavior analysis. She received her master's in education from the University of Washington in 2014 and has been a licensed board certified behavioral analyst in Arizona for the past six years. She's experienced working with children with autism and other developmental disabilities ranging from early intervention, which is around 18 months, to teen years and some young adults. Parent education is a huge passion of hers. Her mission is to give future behavior analysts and parents the tools necessary to increase the quality of life of children and people they serve. She is already partaken on her mission, and I'm so proud of her. So Leah, take it away. What is a BCBA or an ABA, and what theories do you both draw upon when working with childhood behavior? Sure. So let's start with ABA. I think that's a, a, good, a good way to kind of kick this off. So ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. Essentially, it's a science of studying behavior. Um, more specifically, we in this field and in what we study is meaningful evidence-based interventions that can be that so um, you know validity, reliability, and that these interventions that we are using um, are applied to you know the people we're using them with, disability or not, because it's it spread far wide across many different avenues. Specifically, we study you know the area of early intervention with uh, kids with autism is my specialty and we apply our interventions in order to change uh, socially significant behavior which I'll get into here soon uh, to a meaningful degree 
So we're really looking at these behaviors that mean something to the people that we're serving and changing them in order to change their quality of life to be better. So as for what is a BCBA, I, I like to say we're good teachers. BCBA stands for Board Certified Behavior Analyst. Uh, we are licensed and credentialed under uh, a certification board called the BACB. We are just good teachers. We oversee the implementation, assessment, direction of intervention. We study the behavior of others in order to better understand the why behind what they're doing. And then we apply our science and theories to, to the individuals we're working with or, you know, to the behavior of others. And then we change, you know, in hopes that that'll change uh, their behavior to a socially significant and meaningful degree. So in a nutshell, a day in the life of a behavior analyst is really just studying the behavior of others and teaching others how to work with, uh, you know, our science and apply our science. So, yeah. Yeah, what's so cool questions? about this field? Yeah, I do. So the, the it, what's cool about this field is there's like, you guys are drawing upon theory and then applying it in real-time application and then also documenting that, which is social research in real time as well. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I just so, wanted to highlight that too. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So we're data-driven. Everything we do is data-driven. We don't do much without taking data. So um, whether that be, you know, a permanent product, something that, you know, you can maybe we've videoed or permanent product of a child writing their name, whatever it might be, to, you know, a frequency of a behavior duration. Uh, and then we, we really monitor that data to make sure that what we're doing is actually effective. So yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. We, you know, in this field, we've studied a lot with autism in specific, but uh, I've worked with a plethora of behaviors, disabilities, things like that. Um, BCBAs are not just people who work with you know, individuals with autism, yeah. BCBAs can do a, a lot. So it's, it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, you guys have a very, very deep foundation of behavior in, you know, can you help me understand some of the theories you guys use in your approach? It's like any sure. relationship to Skinner's work, yeah. you know, so, like different theories. Yeah. So we definitely use a verbal behavior approach. Uh, you, you definitely brought up Skinner. He's an ABA guru in our field. He's uh, one of what we would say our founding fathers, if you will, in the science. Uh, so he, he really taught us a lot about the, the verbal behavior approach, uh, looking at shaping, which we'll talk a little bit about today, both how to shape an individual's behavior but also how to shape, uh, you know, the person who's implementing interventions, right, and in, in shaping their behavior. So uh, we, we really just focus on the principles of behavior, more specifically the seven dimensions of applied behavior analysis, um, which is, you know, the behavior of, of the actual individual. So it needs to be behavioral or behavioral, which also in turn means it needs to be measurable. We need to be able to measure this. Um, the seven dimensions, and you're throwing me back to study days, but I can kind of word vomit them out. Uh, for the purpose of the talk today, uh, the seven dimensions, the most important that we're going to be talking about today are the applied, which is, um, you know, that we're applying this, our science in order to change behaviors. And then 
uh, generalization, so being generality, being able to generalize these behaviors across places, people, um, opportunities, multiple exemplars, and we'll kind of get into that later as well. Um, and so those are those are some of the, the theories that we apply. The seven dimensions, if you're interested, could be an entire other talk, and I'd get into it. But if you super nerdy. So um, we'll leave it, we'll leave it at that for today. And then we'll go into that further if you want to. Hold yeah, on that, that sounds great. Um, you know, so yeah. then I just want to ask you this question. So why do parents with children who have disabilities need someone to teach them this? I think that's the yeah. best way to kind of approach this deeper conversation. Yeah. So I think this is a great I, it's funny that you bring this up because then two of my parents, uh, I call them parent education. So a lot of times in our field, and, and especially you could literally Google parent training in ABA. I hate that. I hate that we feel that we need to train a parent, right? You already know how to be a parent. You know, you, you have those innate, you know, kind of God-given ability to parent because you were parented, you might take some previous learned history, you know, apply it to your current parenting, but also it's just who you, we are as humans. We're, you know, created to reproduce and have kids and um, you, you have some characteristics that already can do that. So I call it more parent education. So why do I need to educate these parents? Mm -hmm. It's because one approach to you know, parenting or teaching a child with autism or, or disability or not, um, maybe just a behavioral challenge, is you have to sometimes try different approaches. This approach that you might have had a learned history of from your childhood, um, such as spanking. Spanking is a very common one we hear, you know, well, when they do that, I just spank them. Okay, well, is it working? Let's take some data. Does the frequency of how often you have to spank your child decrease over time? Because that would show me that your intervention's effective, right? So we kind of, you know, we throw that back into a parent's court of let's talk about deeper kind of the why behind these behaviors. And then if what you're working is working great, then you don't have to use that intervention as much in the long run. If it's not working, let's give you the tools, you know, to add to your tool belt in order to help, you know, your your just day in and day out because it's hard. The struggle is real as a parent, especially of a parent with a, a child of a disability, uh, especially for a working parent. Um, it's very difficult. So I don't necessarily, you know, think of it as much as, you know, I love that you approach that in it's teaching. That's what I'm doing. I'm educating you. I'm not teaching you to be a parent. I'm teaching you different strategies to use within your home with your child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then some of the complex nature of the behavior can also get us off track and focus. So I could just see how this is so helpful having someone holding you also accountable and bringing all these tools from your very diverse and educated experience. Um, which is also ex direct experience with the people that you've worked with. Because it's not just mm -hmm. all the stuff that you've read and been taught in school, but it's also the anecdotal experience that you get from direct application of that. So it's lovely. Yeah. yeah. You know, so what are some traps you're seeing parents get into, like some mindset blind spot traps when either... 
you know, balancing the ability and disability, right? So how much, how much they help their child versus how much they allow their child to learn. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually great. So let's start off with the compassion side of this, because I think sometimes in our field, and this is, this could be true. Sometimes we forget to leave that piece out and we're getting a lot better, you know, using some of those acceptance and commitment um, therapy strategies. And so I want to kind of start off with first, you know, again, highlighting parenting is hard. And then also highlighting that when you are a parent of a first time, you know, child with a disability and you're navigating that, um, there is no right or wrong answer. So let's, let's start there because I think that's important. And I think um, it is in our nature as parents to just want to protect our child. So the, the difference between seeing the ability versus that disability today, you know, and I'm hoping that anybody takes this little nugget or gem that watches this to know, not even just with your own child, but with anybody with a disability that you see out in, in public, um, you know, your neighborhood grocery store with the person, you know, that's begging your groceries, you know, might be a little quirky or off. Give them a smile, talk to them, ask them how their day is. Don't see disability, see them as a person first. And in our field, we, we really value that, you know, respecting that client and patient dignity is, is very important mm-hmm. because I will, I will tell you that the conversation you might throw up with that grocery beggar at the store might impact your entire life. Um, those moments are going to, you know, not just impact them, but impact you. And uh, I would love to actually share a story. My husband had a, uh, he was, when he was in community college, he had a, a student in his class. Um, it was in his film class. And I think this was very powerful for me in my field to learn this specific story. So I want to share this because my husband truly taught me to see that ability in another person, even though I was already in this field and already understood this. So he had this young man in his class and the reason he chose this class, this course, that was a film studies class was because he was interested in, in film. He, he could memorize movies, actors, ages, you know, that was, that's a great skill to have, right? Some people think of that as weird or, you know, that's stranger, that's quirky of that person because they can quote all of these things out and maybe it sounds repetitive and, you know, he might be lacking some social skills. Um, But what was really cool is that my husband didn't see that as a limitation for him, that when you started talking to him, maybe the first thing he asked was about your favorite show what's your favorite show oh I know that actor and that you know person um and long story short fast forward about six months my husband and him built this relationship they become friends um he actually has a YouTube channel I can share that with you later if you want he's a cool guy and my husband saw this side of him that you know the yearning for friendship and social interaction and things like that and we actually got to go to his 21st birthday party we got invited by him and that foundational moment for me kind of guided where I look at children and where I think parents should look at children. Right. I went, he went to this birthday party and his parents, I remember clear as they had said, 
you know, you didn't, you guys didn't have to do this. We thank you so much for coming. And I remember being like, we know we didn't have to do this. Like I didn't do this out of pity for this guy. Like he's a cool guy. My husband gets lunch with him at school. Like this is my husband's legitimate friend. Like he really wanted to go to his birthday. He was invited. And I thought in that moment, that is where I need to start teaching parents. Your child has the ability to be a friend, right? Like your, your child has these abilities. Don't focus on that. He's quirky and awkward and has autism. Who cares about that? Focus on the fact that he's quirky and it's cool and somebody's going to see that in him. And to use that, like use that ability to be able to talk about these things and interact with others to gain meaningful friendship. So that kind of shifted my gears of that. So that's a, one example and we'll kind of go more in. I know you have questions because you're getting excited. So shoot them back at me. Well, I, I do have some reflections with this. So first of all, this is so true. And I see this a lot in some of my community that I'm serving. Um, it's the like parents believing that their children's beyond their disability, right? And knowing that they can have friends. Um, and it's just interesting how their experiences are reflected and how that may translate to the child and how they may not see that because that's the role. Yeah right? That they're not seeing Mm -hmm. the blind spots. They're not seeing between each other, but that experience also limits the child from seeing themselves and their full ability. Right. So it's, it's, this is where the language and the nuances of language can come up and we can get further into that. But I did want to say, go back to when we talked about um, the delicate push, like push pull, you know, how much, um, do you allow your child to come and try things versus how much do you help them? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you said that so beautifully. I just want to reflect on that. Like it isn't, um, the context matters and everyone's an individual and there's a general template, but there isn't a cookie cutter approach, right? There's a process that can help optimize their outcome, which is really the cultivating that safe space and acceptance mm-hmm. of, of your child and really trying to understand and not, not reflecting anger, right? Right. So I think let's start back at the early years. You and I have had many discussions on the importance of, you know, your, five, your child's first five years of life and the importance of, you know, showing that nature versus nurture. This, this push has to start there. It has to start the day one that you notice your child might be different or not, right? Um, A lot of these principles that I talk about today, yes, apply to your children with a disability, but also any child, okay? So just again, to hit on that. Yeah. So, So when you're looking at building those foundational skills and giving them that independence, I like that you said, you know, where's that kind of cutoff of like having them? My biggest, recommendation for parents is to let them try first. So I try to think of this, my own daughter, she's four and a half. She's at that phase of dressing herself. Like this morning we're getting ready for church. And she said, Oh, I'm going to, I'm putting her, my my little one's clothes on. She's like, Oh, I'm going to put my clothes on by myself. Oh, and she picked, she picked a pair of blue bike rider shorts and a bright pink shirt. And leopard print shoes and I said okay now 
could I have stopped and been like, mm, that doesn't match, let's use this as a matching moment, or rather focus on her ability to dress herself, put her shoes on, have that creative side. It was something she wanted. She made this choice. Having her try it first and then letting her do it, right? Like maybe we find a different way to see that they do things. So breaking this down further, I see a lot of this, of what you're saying of like, you know, parents jumping in. They teach learned helplessness. Parents of typical kids do this too. Yeah. So it's natural. It's almost kind of natural. Right. Cause yeah, we, we call it over prompting. Our kiddos start to get prompt dependent. Um, I will give a specific example of a patient that I have, and this is going to apply to the next later examples that we talk about. Uh, we're teaching toilet training. Toilet training, by the way, is a big sign of independence, right? You don't want to be a 10 year old having somebody still assist you with toileting, much less a seven-year-old in second grade having somebody have to go to the bathroom with you. You know, it's it's a very intimate process going to the bathroom. And so um, we, you know, we target that a lot because that's a big sign of independence. So one of the first steps we teach is just being able to pull your pants up and down. You would be surprised how many parents just do this for their children to like go, like, let's go. Okay here, go potty, sit them on the potty, right? Well, do you want, you know, a different aide at school doing that for your child every day or a different teacher or a substitute teacher or somebody random at the daycare having to do that for your child? No. So the biggest thing that you can do in that moment is let them try it. Okay, it's your turn. If they ask for help, first try and then I'll help you. You need to try this first on your own to see then you can kind of assess, and again, we'll go into this a little bit later, of like, what strategies can you use to help this child? So I went in one day to assist with this because this kiddo wasn't making progress. I'm looking at the data. I said, I know this kid could do this. I know she can. She has the ability to do this. I'm going to see this ability. But when I asked the, the direct therapist providing services, I said, what do you think is going on? She's like, well, every time we go into the bathroom, she asks for help. So I say, okay. And I help her. And I said, oh, you're so kind. But you know, what's even better is that you can make her independent. Don't help her anymore. And they were shocked that I said that. And I said, you, we want her to do this, right? Like we, we need to teach her. Let's see if she can do it by herself. So I stood out of the bathroom and took a couple of minutes for her because she was more upset that we were not doing it for her because she had learned helplessness mm -hmm. because somebody saw her disability and not her ability to be able to do that on her own. So I chatted with mom at our next parent education meeting and she was like, no way, no way she can do that. And I said, well, I can't video it in potty time, but I will tell you, I want you to start trying it at home. She's going to get a little upset at first, but it's not because she can't do it or it's too difficult for her. It's not. It's that she wants you to do it for her. Our goal is to instill as behavior analysts, but also I, I empower my parents. Your goal as a parent is to promote independence for your child, to teach them how to do things, how to navigate life and those and all of those types of things. So hopefully that kind of answered your question on, you know, really seeing their abilities versus over helping in some of the areas. Um, I'll give a list soon here about just different ways, you know from, you know, early childhood to 
adolescence that you can kind of promote some of those independent skills. Wow, that was so beautifully said. And I think there's a lot there that people can draw upon and actually think about. Like, one, the mom not thinking that the child can do this, right? Having that belief. And where is that coming from? Also, two, it is true when I think about potty behavior and stuff, like there are times where if you're in a situation where it's a social situation, you have to get to A to B, you know, being effective, it, you got to be quick sometimes, but it sounds like when you're introducing some of these things, trying to, to cultivate an environment that's, has time, has, um, less pressure so that Mm -hmm. it's not too stressful. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I love that you brought that up because that that draws back to generalization. So when we're first teaching these new skills, you're right. You want to teach it in a safe environment where they're comfortable. So for example, if you have a child, toileting is a good example. Let's give another one of haircutting. They're terrified of getting their hair cut, the sound of the clippers. (laughs) Right, right. They hate it. Well, you're not going to take them to the salon to get their hair cut right? Because that's overstimulating. So a lot of the the times you're going to practice that skill in a safe environment, safe space, if you will, maybe at home, in therapy, at the clinic, we're going to desensitize this this child. And then we're going to work up to that, to generalize the skill that we individually taught using lots of our principles, and then generalizing it over to a new environment. So generalization, and that's why I kind of hit on that from our seven dimensions, generality is so, so important. We cannot expect that a child is going to be able to wash their hands at this house and then at this house and then at this house because everything is different. So we have to teach those that ability. And and so, yeah, that was very, I'm glad you brought that up because it's very important. We're not just going to teach them to do that. And, you know, when it's a time we have to go quickly. Also, Hitting back onto the, your parents, right? Mm-hmm. Give yourself grace. There are some times where even though it's a good opportunity to promote independence, you don't got time for that. Yeah. <laughs> you might, you know, every morning in my household, throwing on the shoes for them and, you know, doing those things. But that goes back to a whole nother topic of, you know, being able to self-manage and pick those battles as a parent and really hone in on the skills that you want to. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was a great lead into the generality portion of what our, our field, you know, tries to do. Mm -hmm. You know, and now we can kind of go into some discipline structuring. So I would love to hear more about, I I, thank you for this, this, um, background knowledge and your experience is so helpful, but I, I do, I'm curious to know a little bit more about, um, discipline structuring, uh, very specific to, children that are that have disabilities so you know sure if you could speak a little bit more about their temperaments and the way they may internalize versus uh somebody that you know would you agree that individuals um in the spectrum their their temperament and internalization may be a little bit more intensified yeah so their abilities to reason work through social emotional situations is a, it can be different than um, other children. So, for example, neurotypical child, you know, 
you might see a little bit more steps to getting towards that tantrum. So they might, you know, fall to the floor and then they might keep asking the same thing, you know, and then you might have to say no 10 times before that tantrum occurs versus a child on the spectrum. Just the first time you say that NO, it's zero to 60. They get dysregulated easier uh, and their temperament in what we would call it is the behavior, observable behavior, behavior that we can see. Um, here, we can talk about the five senses later, but as far as when you say discipline, in our field, we don't necessarily focus on discipline in the sense of, you know, how you think of it in normal parenting, right? So when I get a new parent that comes into the clinic, they're like, okay, well, you guys don't use punishment. Like you're not gonna hit them. You're not gonna, oh no, 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 no. We don't do that here. We actually really wanna work on uh, positive reinforcement. Yeah. So what is positive reinforcement, right? Like that's the big overall thing. Positive reinforcement is something that you add to the environment or, um, I'll break this down a little bit further, um, but to increase the likelihood that a behavior is going to occur, right? Or um, sometimes not occur, which we can talk about later uh, as well. So we look at reinforcement as a whole. We don't want to focus on, you know, the punishment side of things and the things that, you know, we kind of see old style parents use, right? Um, and so, this is in order to teach good behaviors. So we don't necessarily focus on really looking at the, the bad behavior as much as we look at what can we do to get this kiddo to react or respond differently mm -hmm. so that they gain these skills to help them, you know, regulate in, in other environments, situations with other people. Mm -hmm. So some of those examples, we call them replacement behaviors. So um, in ADA, uh, let's go back to your, your solid question of that discipline. We look at the ABCs. This is the ABC paradigm. You can yeah. Google this. It's everywhere. Um, A being antecedents, B being behavior, C being the consequence. Consequence is not always a bad thing. So when we break that down, the antecedent, what happens right before the behavior, the behavior, what happens like what is the child doing and then the consequence is what happens after the behavior so i'll give you the golden you know book the golden example of an abc you are at the grocery store you go down the candy aisle so this is the antecedent this is what is going to happen right before the behavior your child starts screaming and crying and uh -huh. kicking and saying, I want lollipop or I want candy. And then what do parents typically do, right? And I'm guilty of this. I am not ashamed to empathize with my families about, you know, sometimes I do this in my own parenting, in my own household. Gonna give Usually, them a lollipop. <laughs> we're gonna give them the lollipop. So that's that ABC paradigm. So then when we look at how can we avoid that behavior in the future? Or how can we teach some skills? So some replacement behaviors we're gonna teach are waiting, functionally communicating. Sometimes we have to teach, you know, tolerating no. Like that's not an option today. Maybe mom doesn't have enough money in the budget today to get an extra bag of lollipops, whatever it might be. Um, 
We're also going to teach, you know, maybe having a quiet voice or an inside voice would be a good opportunity. Um, and so those would be some re replacement behaviors that we're going to strengthen. Um, and then, you know, as far as in, in that situation, what would you do, right? As a parent, if, if I get this all the time, by the way, my parents with kiddos on the spectrum are like, hey, I can't, I can't, um, you know, I can't take my kid to the store because all they, you know, they always ask for donuts or this or that. And I'm like, okay, well, we need to practice that. And let's practice it more because I agree. It's a hard, I have two littles at home. It's a hard situation, but the more you practice and the more you go out, the more that you're going to be able to teach these skills and teach these replacement skills. Um, and then sometimes it can be a no. And I think that's a fair thing to do. Sometimes it's okay, but now we're going to teach you this great skill of waiting because that's a valuable, like, you know, skill, very meaningful. Mm -hmm. And then you can have it once we get in the car. Um, there, there's lots of different ways, but I think, and, I, and I'll let you talk here in a moment. I'm sorry. It's something I'm passionate about. But I think one of the other things is, you know, we, we focus on the why behind the, the, why is the behavior happening? That's why we look at those ABCs to see what part of that paradigm can we kind of change. So maybe we don't go down the candy aisle until the last one before we go to checkout. So that's going to be, you know, you know, you might accidentally this time, or usually it's like right when you walk into this side of the store. So don't walk onto the side of the store with the toys. So be mindful when you go to the store next time that this happens because we walked down the, the side, you know, or, you know, I target's not a good example because the dollar section's right there and it's like the best thing, right? So it's hard to like walk down that. Um, or maybe we need to prepare them more for, hey, we're going into the store. All we're getting is one, you know, apple because we forgot that, you know, whatever. And letting them know that kind of signaling and preparing them. So we kind of focus more on that paradigm and then the function behind why does this behavior occur? And that paradigm really helps us to, you know, identify the why behind the behavior. Mm -hmm. Something that I want to remark on is that a pattern I, I just kind of heard through what you're expressing with the teaching is that there's a lot of communication between the parent and the child as well as the, the behavioral analysis, right? And, and um, yeah. And so a lot of times I hear parents, they'll say, oh, my child's not smart enough. They don't know that yet, you know? And it's just like, actually, they are very aware of their surroundings and you have to trust, like going into it, trusting that they will learn. They, they do have the ability and they're picking up on anything you're sharing. So the communication is something I just want to highlight again. It's like that it's showing them and helping them understand something it's not just about the child they're not bad it's it's actually whatever mom like mom's communicating that it's not a good time or showing why there's just an explanation behind why they don't get the thing that they're wanting and it's yeah it's i would actually venture them. to say that oh go, go ahead no keep going yeah i would actually venture to say that we as parents need to change our behavior more than our children. Hence the title, how autistics mm -hmm. can teach us about resiliency, because it shows how right. even adults can learn and, and, and they're beautiful. Yeah. They're here to teach us. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. 
that, that yeah. all, not all our ways are the right ways. Right. <laughs> there are different right. ways it, to do things. Absolutely. And I think now more than ever in our ever-changing field, um, in our ever-changing world, that there are so many ways to do things. So I couldn't agree more. I think uh, the kids that I work with and the people that I work with have taught me more, you know, honestly, to be a more patient parent, to be more patient in general, to not attend to some of the, you know, I call it junk behavior. So, you know, the mom, 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 over and over and over, or the, you know, grunting when kids get mad or, <laughs> um, you know, I have patients that do some silly, quirky things like climb on the table to get their, your attention, right? It's taught me, you know, there's some things that aren't safe that we have to attend to. There's some things that we don't have to provide direct attention to. Um, but it's taught me a little bit more, you know, patience to sit back, to kind of learn from them and understand, you know, how do I teach this, you know, human to communicate to me? Um, and the best way that you can is, like you're saying, is to communicate to them. There's a, uh, it, you're reminding me of a book called the last lecture. This is not an autism specific book. I would say it's a really good life guide. A great one to add to your list. I read it in my senior year of high school and then we had to write our own last lecture. It's about a man with terminal cancer and he kind of writes his chapters. Each chapter is a chapter of what he believes is very important in life. And he has one about his kids and he, he has this story in there and I've always kept this with me as a parent he was like you know when you were little and Ashley and I can relate to this and you <laughs> color on the wall uh. right I remember the toy box in our room behind it we pull it out and we scribble on the wall uh -huh. and I, I remember him taking a different approach to that parenting in this book of let them color on the wall and I was like, whoa. And he was like, we just ended up painting a chalk wall for our kids because we wanted them to explore and create and be a kid, right? And a lot of times in those moments as parents, we get mad and we communicate anger and frustration. And now mind you, you it's a little bit of a reason, right? Permanent marker on your wall. Like, I get it. I give grace to you. However, and, and you can't do this in every situation. There's definitely exceptions, but let's turn that into a teachable moment. So same kind of difference. Eli, my son, colored, uh, I, this is why I only give him washable markers, but since he was coloring, they're on the floor, they're coloring. He starts coloring on, I turn my mitt back for a minute. He's coloring on the floor. You know, we have tiled in goodness. And then he starts coloring on his body. And I'm like, okay, in that moment, hone in. I'm mad, right? Let me check myself. Okay, let's go to him and teach him we color on paper. Like that's the replacement behavior. We don't color on our body. We don't color on the tile. This is where you can color. So to teach him. So kind of just a different approach and way to look at, you know, how we as parents communicate certain things and you know, giving yourself a few seconds to process and you're not going to be perfect as a parent. We all have our own outside setting events, what I would call it. And we can get into that too, but 
you know, some outside variables that impact how we're behaving, right? We didn't get sleep the last night before. We had a report due and we're really trying to get it done. And our kid is doing this. And there's lots of things Mm -hmm. that could impact why we're behaving the way we are. And that is why you need to focus on your own behavior too, as a parent, and then communicating that to your child. And also not looking at that disability as a um, inability. They don't have an inability necessarily. Um, And looking at that ability to do the things that they can, like, wow, he can color. That's awesome. I just don't want him to color on his body. Let's focus on teaching him how to color and where to color, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really great. That's really great points because children are going to, they are creative and explored, especially when they're in, you know, in those stages of zero to five, they're just going to be testing everything, you know, and, yeah. mm-hmm. and allowing them to express that and noticing your reactions to something that might be a little trivial and you just need to teach around it. Right. And it gives yeah. you patience, right. Just like, like when you talked about uh, your daughter, when she put on her clothes, I love that story because it's like, as a mom, you're like maybe aesthetically thinking, Oh, I want her to kind of match and maybe not wear inside out, but where do we yeah. draw the line? Like, as long as she's clothed and you know, the, the goal is for her to learn and trust herself, right? That's the goal. So she's, she's learning that it's not to be aesthetically looking good. You know, it's, it's to learn. And if she puts on the wrong shoes, maybe you'll help her with that because it might affect her structure and her comfort. Right. And it might cause aberrant behavior. (laughs) Um, But, but I think that's just such a great story, you know, because I see, I actually see, I, uh, there's been parents that I see walking the streets, you know, and their, their, their kids want to jump in the mud puddle. Let them jump in the mud puddle. You know, like, like, why not? Why not just let them, what's going to, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if they want to. kids be kids. You know, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think taking a step back in parent, your parenting journey and looking at that and we'll, we'll get to some great resources. The joy of parenting is a really good one. Uh, it's an acceptance and commitment therapy guide to effective parenting in the early years. Uh, even if you're not in the early years, I would say this is a great book um, or a great read for future parents um, by Dr. Amy uh, Morell. Okay. And it, it does go over some practical skills-based exercises to go over how to handle tantrums and defiance with grace, refocusing on big picture values when you're overwhelmed with certain things. So really focusing on your end goal. Your end goal is one day for your child to be able to have a job and live independent. Let's, well, how do we get there? And, and in our, our science, and this is one of my favorite things that we use in our field is a, a technique called shaping. Mm-hmm. And you're basically reinforcing approximation to your terminal goal, right? Mm-hmm. And that can be a big goal. It can be as small as, you know, just being able to say mama. And we're going to shape how a child can say that. like. We're going to start with the the beginning sound, mm, like for a mama. Um, and then we're going to shape and reinforce each step of the way to get to their terminal goal of mama. Um, so, you know, really focusing on that bigger picture when you're feeling upset and overwhelmed. Acting compassionately towards yourself when we make mistakes mm-hmm. because you think we... Uh-oh. We don't mean we... 
there's things that we shouldn't as parents, and that's just true. And then adjusting, um, it talks about adjusting your parenting as um, a child works through the stones in transition. So realizing, you know, my daughter's learning, she's learning to dress herself, and how do I be patient through those times when I'm like, okay, you're wearing a dress with jeans and long socks, and you live in Arizona, and it's 110 degrees out right now. Um, the dress and socks probably would have been fine, the pants, but really, you know, that's a teachable moment of, hey, if you get hot, you're going to have to take your pants off, just, you know, kind of teaching her those things of using that as a teachable moment versus a, oh, wow, you look ridiculous, you know, no, I actually think quite the latter, you want to tell them, you look beautiful, your outfit is great, like, I love the way that you dress yourself, that was awesome, mm-hmm. we'll get and use shaping to get to the terminal goal of maybe being aesthetically pleasing or being able to match your outfit together. Um, you know, asking for other people's opinions, asking your parents, does this match? And those are things you can do later on. But oh yeah, so The Joy of Parenting, great book. I think it's, it's definitely a good one for, for any parent, really. But, you know, when you're talking about kids with, having a child with a disability, this is a must-have. You know what I was just reminded reminded of is that when we were younger, how I could see how you went into this because your passion for this bleeds all the way into when you were young, like helping me with attire because I wasn't right. good at picking out things. Um, you know, yeah, you helped me with some of the shaping and <laughs> approximation. Right. That's funny. Yeah. Um, funny stories, funny stories about our experiences and how they come up. But anyway. Yeah. Um, so is there, you know, any other things that you, you'd like to summarize to take away, like if you could offer the audience, um, that we didn't have, you know, some time to touch on? Yeah, I would say the top three things, um, you know, give yourself grace as a parent and know that you're not going to be perfect. I think that's a huge one. Um, really focusing on your child's ability and then shaping those abilities to you know get to your end goal so don't just look at you know my child can't do this well what can your child do so if your child can turn on the water to wash their hands that's a great first step let's start there let's focus on that ability and then really shape and increase um you know their their ability to be stronger and then the the last thing i would say is ask for help from others navigate parenting a child with a disability with, you know, grace and more grace and more grace and more grace because it's not easy. Um, parenting isn't. And then you add the world of disability into it and it makes it, you know, 10 times harder. So ask for help. Don't feel like you're failing as a parent. Um, and I think when you look at it at that viewpoint, uh, same thing, like, Sometimes we have to fail and your children will too. And sometimes we learn from our failures and our mistakes and asking for help or, you know, learning those replacement behaviors for yourself or teaching those replacement behaviors for your child is very, very important. So those are the top three, three I would, I would leave on that end note. Grace, ability, and asking for help. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that. So mm-hmm. I'm going to post some things in the, uh, podcast links below with yeah. regards to resources. So if there's anything there you could send me, I would love that. 
And mm-hmm. then I'd love to know where we could find you. I know you're in Arizona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or anywhere online we can find you. Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn is probably the best place. I will share lots of little uh, tips and tricks on parenting, um, on our field, on resources. You can feel free to message me, even if you're not necessarily in Arizona. I have uh, lots of resources uh, in other you know, states uh, or can link you to some resources if you need. Um, but LinkedIn is a really great way to find me. This is Leah Bechtold. Okay. Wonderful. I'll have that posted below. We are so grateful for your expertise and time today, sister. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It was so good to chat and letting me kind of blubber on about my passion. 